So glad you guys are joining us for this conversation that we're beginning this weekend. I want to apologize right up front. Uh, I want to apologize if uh, in this conversation my thoughts seem disjointed a little bit, right? Uh, it's kind of a big week uh, for our family. And uh, so this week coming up, uh, I'm going to have the opportunity to walk my daughter down the aisle, right? And uh, my family has bets out. And the bets they have out is whether dad's going to cry or not, right? Uh, but it's a big week for us. And so really excited about that. Really kind of focused on it. a lot of planning for that uh, and praying towards that. Uh, but I'm glad that you're joining us for this conversation. Brand new conversation we're having. Here's what I want to ask you to start out. Uh, some of you are uh, joining us maybe for the first time. Others of you, you've been hanging out with us online all throughout this thing, and hopefully I get to see some of you in person here soon. But you ever heard somebody say, I'm looking for the perfect church? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're watching this and you're like, hey, I'm looking for the perfect church. I want to find the perfect church uh, that I might be able to join up with. Here's what I want to tell you. If you're looking for the perfect church, don't come here. Right? I just want to tell you, don't come here to the Norton Campus of Grace Church. Uh, if for no other reason, this is not a perfect church because it is led by a less than perfect guy. Uh, I am a very imperfect guy. But I love what Billy Graham said. Billy Graham said this. He said this. If you find a perfect church, he says, don't join it. <laughs> You'll spoil it, right? The fact is that none of us are perfect, right? And there is no perfect church. But this conversation we're going to begin today, we're going to look at a letter that Paul wrote to a church that wasn't a perfect church. Listen close. It was a model church. It was a model church. It wasn't perfect. You're going to see that throughout this series. He has to address some things, but he says it's a model church. Uh, the book or the letter or the part of the Bible is 1 Thessalonians. You have a Bible, you can go there, kind of turn there. Fascinating little book. Uh, some people would say it's the oldest book in the New Testament, right? Uh, that 1 Thessalonians is the first book written. But when you think about 1 Thessalonians, it is a book written to real people, and it is written in a real place, right? A place in Greece, and it's right by the Aegean Sea. A beautiful city full of gods and goddesses right at the nose of Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was between Macedonia and Thessalonica. And uh, this city was a place where Paul ministered. You can read about this, Acts 17. We just did a series on this, right? Acts 17. Pastor Jay did a great job last week kind of talking through this. And you can see the planting of this church happened about, ah, about eight Forty-nine, eighty, something like that, right? And and all of a sudden, Paul is writing to some real people in a real church at a real place, facing real situations, right? And he's writing to them in response to what he heard from Timothy, and and, and what we're going to find to start with, he is extremely encouraged about what's going on there, because here's what he hears: that there is a movement of God that is ignited in this little church. And by the time he's writing, this church is probably a year old. And this movement of God is ringing out from this model church. It's literally ringing out to places that go way beyond where this church was at. Let's read it, and then let's make some observations. Here's what it says. First Thessalonians, you have your Bibles? First Thessalonians 1, beginning verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God, so they're praying, and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, 
and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, Holy Spirit, deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the Lord's message rang out. That word means echoed out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. That's fascinating. A model church, right? Become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son, that's Jesus, from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What a fascinating start to this little letter, right? Little short chapter, 10 verses, right? The very first thing that jumps out at me is this. Paul, the guy writing this, the guy that founded the church, was extremely thankful for these people. Like he was thankful the message of Jesus was echoing from them, movement of God working in them, their faith in God known throughout the region and beyond, right? He was thankful for them. Here's what it made me think before we jump any further into this little part of this little letter. I am thankful for you. For those of you who call the Norton Camps of Grace Church your home, we are not a perfect church. But I want to tell you something. I am thankful for you. Wednesday night, we had our annual congregational meeting. It's a worship service, and then we look at some business stuff here at the Norton campus. And I was reminded of how thankful I am of you. Several things made me think that. I've been thankful over the last year, 18 months, thankful for how God has worked in you and your faith in God and the message of Jesus has echoed out from you. Uh, first and foremost, I think about uh, your response to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? It's fascinating. The church never stopped. The church never shut down. The church never closed, right? It was always on the move. You guys have been on the move. 800 gift bags, frontline workers, 75 uh, fruit baskets to frontline workers, 65 care baskets to neighbors, right? You put together COVID packages. Many of you contributed to the food pantry that we were able to minister to a whole group of people in that way. Some of you went Christmas caroling during Christmas time, saying to people who were shut in, who couldn't get out. I have so, so appreciated your diligence during this time. Not only that, but we were able to help some neighbors out, right? Uh, many of you were part of this, 13 different homes that you were part of painting during this time just to help out some people who needed some help from a neighbor in their community. Beyond that, I have so appreciated your flexibility. Some of you might recognize this picture. Some are like, what's that, right? But we had several services that were outside not the least of which was our Christmas Eve service in the middle of a snowstorm, right? And some of you who were here like, man, I will never forget Christmas Eve 2020, right? Your flexibility, creativity. But here's what I appreciate. You kept the main thing, ready? The main thing. And the main thing is always Jesus. 
The main thing is always the gospel. The, the, the message of Jesus rang out from you. Your faith in God has become known. Uh, we are this weekend, some of you are watching this because you're going to be part of this, uh, going to continue these things called Service Sunday. So here throughout the morning, we'll have services as normal, but we're going to have people that are serving in the community. They're going to be painting homes. They're going to be working in the pantry. They're going to be getting together at picnic for some people in our community. And I am so grateful for that. This last Wednesday, one of the things we talked about uh, was, was simply the finances during the last 12, 18 months. And the generosity of God's people during this time has been unreal. We went into COVID and we kind of pared down our budget, made it a conservative budget. And I, I'm going to tell you this, that the generosity of you has been overwhelming, has been extravagant in this time, that we were able not only to meet budget, to surpass budget so that we could begin to do things to continue to gain traction for the movement of God. On top of that, you've been part of this big picture project where over the last four years, you've planted a campus in County Line, Sterling, Ohio, right? And where people are coming to Christ. You were one of the first churches to be part of Restore Ministry to help people who are addicted to drugs not only find Jesus, but to find hope and help in the middle of their addiction. Uh, not only that, but you've been part of training next generation leaders, interns and residents, two of which graduated this year, right? And then on top of all that, over the last four years, one million meals that you've been part of making. I am thankful for you. Movement of God has been so evident. But here's what I don't, I want you to, I don't want you to miss this. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is thankful. I'm thankful for you. Paul's thankful. He kept thanking God for them, but he didn't just thank God for them. He prayed for them. Why did he do that? Because Paul knew something. Lean in, lean in. He knew this. He knew that what he was thankful for, he wanted to pray it would continue because it doesn't take long for a movement to become a museum. You know what a museum is? Museum's a place you go and you look at all the activity that happened in the past. A movement is about what is happening in the present. And Paul wanted that movement to continue. Here at Grace Church, our vision is simply this. Our vision is to launch 30 campuses in 30 years. 30 campuses in 30 years. Right now we have eight campuses that are meeting this weekend of Grace Church. Our purpose is simple, is to ignite a gospel-centered movement. It's to be a movement, not a museum, not a monument, by knowing it, living it, and giving it away. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way a movement's gonna ignite and keep igniting is if somehow it moves in on each of us in a radical way. If it moves in on me, if it moves in on you. I love this little saying. It says this, that movements change people. And changed people change the world. When you get to 1 Thessalonians, it is so evident that the movement of God found in the gospel moved in on these people. They became a model of the movement of God among them. And it literally echoed out. And what Paul was thankful for, he continued to pray for. What he was thankful for, he continued to pray for. So here's the deal for today. Ready? Ready? What is it then that made them a model church? How do you detect the movement of God among them? Ready? How would we detect the movement of God among us? Three things. 
Three things that are right here in, in this little letter, this little part of 1 Thessalonians. First is this. You see it right there in the beginning. Here's what he says. Verse 3, he says, Your work produced by, say it out loud, by what? Faith. First, first sign of the movement of God, first sign that you see in this model church is this. I want you to write this down. That they had a dynamic faith that walks the talk. They're, they were a church that was at work. Their work was a product of their faith. We've got to do some important discussion here. Uh, your good works, ready? Turn the volume up. Your good works will never save you. Your good works will never save you. They, they just won't. Only faith in the good work Jesus did for you will save you. The good work that he did on the cross the good work that happened at the empty grave. That is the only thing that will save us from our sin. That is the only thing that will save us into his family. That is the only thing that will secure us forever. Your good work will never save you. Only the good work Jesus did will save you. And the way someone becomes a Christian or a follower of Christ or a disciple of Jesus is by trusting the good work Jesus did for them. Your good work will never save you. But here's what he's saying. A declared faith in Jesus that is not a demonstrated faith, you ready, is a dead faith. I'm going to say that again. A declared faith in Jesus that is not demonstrated is a dead faith. Uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, said it this way. He said, what good's my brothers if, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds, no works, right? Can such a faith save him? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is what? What? It's dead. It's dead. That's what he's saying. I believe this. I believe truly the events of the last year and a half, two years, have revealed some things about the American church. Honestly. And I think one of the things that it's revealed is that sometimes in the American church, there has been a declared faith that hasn't been a demonstrated faith. And so it's been a dead faith. People would say they're a person of faith because of something they declare. And what I think Paul is saying is that it is not just something that's declared, but it's demonstrated. In fact, he says this in the text. You can kind of see it there. I think it's verse 5. Here's what he says. Our gospel came to you not simply with words. It was with words, but not simply with words. It was declared, but he says, but also with what? Power the Holy Spirit, deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. It was demonstrated. This is what he's saying. Paul says, you could see the work of the gospel in our lives when we were with you. It was not simply with moving words, but it was the life, ready, moving power of the very presence of God that moved into their life with deep conviction. Listen, I want to tell you something. This church in Thessalonica was a model church, not simply because they were a busy church. I must say that again. It's so important you hear this. Lots of busy churches are not doing a work that's produced by faith. That's worth writing down. You, you can be a busy church and not be doing the work that's produced by faith. Being busy is not the goal. Activity is not the goal. 
So what is it that distinguishes a work that's produced by faith? Paul points out two things. Can, can we do that really quick? Two things. What is a work that's produced by faith? Uh, look back at what it says in verse 9. Here's what it says. He says, the first work of faith that's produced by faith is a turning from something. He says, they tell you how you turned to God, get to that in a minute, from idols. The very first thing is this, the very first work that faith produces in us is a walking away from cultural idols. <clears throat> faith in God produces a work, and the work is this, a walking away from the idols of our culture. That's what he's saying. You gotta remember the people Paul's talking to, okay? Let's just, context is important, right? He's talking to people that are living out their lives right at the, at the nose of a place called Mount Olympus. You need to understand where all the Greek gods would have been represented and worshiped. Mount Olympus was between Thessalonica and Macedonia. And so they would have been living out their lives with this constant reminder. Quite possibly, there were other gods even in their city and maybe even a replica or statue or image of Caesar himself, which they would have been expected to pay homage to, allegiance to in their city. What he's saying is when the gospel moved in on them, they turned from idols. And you need to know something. I'm going to tell you something. They walked away from the idols of their culture, and walking away from the idols of their culture would have had religious ramifications, would have had relational ramifications, would have had social, would have had financial ramifications, would have had political ramification. Paul says this, the gospel of Jesus confronts our idols. It confronts the things that we're counting on to save us, give us purpose, security, and identity. The gospel work, faith, the first work it produces is it confronts my idols. I love what <clears throat> Tim Keller says. Look what he says. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. This is interesting. What do we fear the most? What do you fear the most? What if we lost it would make life not worth living? That's an interesting question. We make sacrifices to our idols to appease and please our gods who we believe will protect us. See, all kinds of things become our idols, our gods, right? And what he's saying is the first work that faith in God produces is recognizing the idols in our life. And ultimately, what Tim Keller is saying is kind of validating something I read in a book just a few days ago, and that's this, that ultimately, particularly here in the 21st century, the idol that we serve the most, and, and you would know this to be true, I don't have to make a point of this, is ourself. Is ourself. Like, like there's this drive and desire for self-autonomy, freedom, freedom from authority of people over me. I want to be the one who calls the shots, runs the show. 
It's like this desire to serve self. And here's what happens. Listen, listen. Here's what happens. Even then, our religious devotion can become a subtle way to serve the idol of me. Honestly. That's what happens many times to many of us. Instead of worshiping God and serving God, we use God to serve the idol of me. That's why some of us are frustrated with God, honestly. We're upset at God because you might be really religious, and so you might think to yourself, I've done all the right things. I, I volunteer, I go to church, I contribute, I tithe, I, all those things. And for you, you're like, I, I do all of those things so that I can have the good life that I see in culture. And for whatever reason, that good life isn't happening the way you wanted to see it happen. And so it makes us frustrated at God because what happens is we use God to serve what? Me, so that I can have my best life right now, right? You see, that's idolatry. That's what it is. Uh, the book I was reading was a book called Disappearing Church and written by a guy named Mark Sayers, great book. And he says this, what happens is we want to retain the fruits of Christianity and the solace of faith while maximizing our authority and our autonomy. It's like we want to hang on to the idol of me while having the fruits and the benefit of Christianity. The very first work that faith produces is it confronts my idols. But then he says this, look what he says back at 1 Thessalonians. He says this, they tell how you didn't just turn from idols, but you turn to, say it out loud, turn to God, to what? To Say that out loud right there, to serve the living and the true God. Now, what Paul is saying is this, we change our allegiance from the things that are and were idols in our life, and we pledge our ultimate allegiance and devotion to the true and living God. We serve God. See, that's the, that, that's, the, that's the work that faith produces in us. We serve God, not that he serves us. In that same book by uh, Mark Sayers, Disappearing Church, he says this, we are not seekers. That's interesting, right? Just let us sing in. We're slaves, servants. The churches that do not fade and disappear in the West, that's our culture, right? will be churches that preach, teach, and live out the truth that we are called to live as servants, slaves of Christ. A church fragrance of selflessness and a culture of selfishness. We're people who give up our autonomy. Go ahead and let that sink in because that's confronting to us in our culture, right? But we don't just give it up to unjust rulers or to authorities but to the true king, the one good king, the king who has taken all of our rebellion, sin, injustice upon himself. We lay our authority and our autonomy down at the feet of the king with scars. That's the work produced by faith. We trust that God is the living and true God. He is the only one, ready, that can make sense of my life. That's the work produced by faith. All of our work then, all of what we do is a result of our faith that he is the one true and living God. He is the king. That is what the work of faith is. They were a church that was at work and their work was a product of their faith. So how do I know that I 
I, the work that I am producing is a product of my faith. Well, I just wrote in my notes here several questions. Maybe they're good for you to write down. I think the first thing, I, if I wanna know this, just some questions to ask yourself. I gotta ask, am I serving God with my life? Or am I somehow expecting God to serve my life? That's a subtle question, but I gotta ask myself, am I serving God with my life? Does he have my life? I'm gonna serve you. It's at your disposal. Or am I somehow expecting God to serve me? Some of the things that I ask myself to determine whether I'm serving God with my life is I, I wanna ask myself, does what breaks my heart is it the same as what breaks his heart? That's an interesting question. I'm gonna tell you why. This is for free, this is a leadership principle. What, what breaks your heart will fuel your vision and what fuels your vision will drive your life. What breaks your heart will fuel your vision. One of the things that breaks our heart here, ought to break our heart, is people living without Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can make their, their life make sense. He's the only hope, the only one who can rescue us, right? I gotta ask myself, what breaks my heart? Maybe I ask myself this, what am I praying for? What, what are the things that I'm praying for? It, am I praying for things that without God, they're doomed to fail? Sometimes our prayers are kind of small. I'd ask myself, is the work that I'm praying for gonna be produced by a faith that, in a God that's much bigger than me? Sometimes when we think about the work produced by faith, we think, well, that's the work that happens at church. That's gospel work. I think if I'm gonna ask myself, am I producing a, a work from, is faith in, in my life producing a work? I gotta ask myself, how does what I'm doing serve God? I think it, I gotta ask myself, how does me being a nurse serve the living and true God? I think I gotta ask myself, how do me being a bus driver, a plumber, a carpenter, a barista, a stay-at-home mom, how does that serve the true and living God? I think that's what Paul's saying here, that all of my work is produced by a faith that my entire life is laid at the surrender of the one who's the true and living God. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this. He says, yeah, your work produced by faith. And he says, your labor, circle that in your Bible, is your labor prompted by love. That Greek word for labor, you can forget this, but here's literally what it means. It means uh, to toil, to uh, labor even to the point of fatigue, right? He says, labor sometimes gets exhausting. Like, like the work can get exhausting. And Paul says it was motivated by love. Think about this for a minute. Uh, we will do crazy things that are even exhausting for the sake of love. You tracking with me? Right? Like, like we, when love is the inspiration, you'll do things even when you're exhausted, right? Uh, when I was engaged to Jennifer, she lived in Chicago. I lived about two and a half hours south a little bit east of there. And I used to work Sunday nights. I'd go in at eight o'clock and I'd unload trucks all night long. And sometimes I'd get off nine or 10 the next morning. 
but I'd have the next day off. And so I worked from eight at night till 10 the next morning. And I would, many of those Monday mornings, get in my car after working all night long, and I would drive two and a half hours to Chicago. Why? Because I was in love. <laughs> I love Jennifer. I want to see Jennifer. I was dog tired. But I'm going to tell you something. If you told me not to go, I'm like, I'm going. Why are you going? Because I love Jennifer. I wanted to see Jennifer. I wanted to be with Jennifer, right? You see, here's what he's saying. He says, your, your, your labor is inspired or motivated by love. Or, or maybe you could write it down this way. The second marker of a movement of God is a contagious love that infects and inspires a church. That's what he's saying. I think this is powerful. It's not just that they did what they did, but it was why they did it. There's something interesting here. There's all kinds of reasons that we can labor and do what we do. Some of you are doing what you're doing and even doing what you're doing for God out of guilt. You just feel guilty, say, or maybe it's this moral obligation. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? Or for some of you, it's pride. Some of you, it's tradition. This is what we've always done. They labored not because of those things. They didn't even labor because of a spiritual adrenaline. Some of us do what, what we do because uh, maybe we hear somebody whip up our emotions and we have this spiritual adrenaline, right? But you know something as well as I do. Those things, over time, will not carry your labor when it gets exhausting. Love is the fuel. Love is the motivation. They were infected and inspired by love. And what they had been infected with was contagious. Look what Paul says back in 1 Thessalonians. He says this, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, say this phrase out loud. Go ahead and say it. Loved by God. This is where this begins. It's not just that they loved other people and that their love for other people is because, you know, Paul said we need to love others. In fact, I would suggest this. That's not the place to start. A lot of people say you need to go love others and it's all about loving others. The place to start is to recognize that you are loved by God. A model church, a movement of God, recognizes the love of God, is infected with a contagious love that God has for me. It begins by being overwhelmed, overwhelmed by God's love for me. Can we just camp here for a second? Many of us, and maybe you, can I just talk to you for a second? Many of us, maybe you, have a wrong view of God. You're not motivated by love because your picture of God's wrong. Some of you, you grew up with this drill sergeant view of God. And so the truth of the matter is you grew up with this like keep the rules and if you don't keep the rules, you're gonna get yelled at by God. You know, and, and well-meaning people said to you, you're gonna make God angry and, right? Or, or maybe you have this view of God like he's disappointed with you. Maybe he's tired of you. Maybe he's given up on you. Like, like you have a wrong view of God. So it's not love that's fueling what you're doing. It's like, I just don't wanna get yelled at by God. I want to get back in God's good graces. Or I hope God will start paying attention to me again. Can I show you a couple of verses here? Can I just show them to you? You ought to write these down. You ought to go highlight them in your Bible. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Like, like John says he loved the world so much. He loves you so much that he gave Jesus. 
Uh, see how very much, you see, you see, he's almost like going overboard. Our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that's what we are. But God showed his, what? Great love. He didn't kind of love me. He didn't kind of put up with me. He didn't kind of like me. His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us when we got our life all together. That's not what it says, isn't it? While, while, while we were still sinners, when we had nothing to offer, nothing to give. You see, this book is about a holy God who spills out his heart and he wants us to grow in our understanding of how incredibly much he loves us to the point that it infects us. And what infects us becomes contagious. It spills from us. I want you to remember that. Changes. It's not the preacher said, go love my neighbor. It's like when I become infected with God's love for me, it spills from me, right? I, I've shared this before. I had a boss one time ask me what God's gonna ask me when I get to heaven. And the short of the story is I just looked at him. I was a seminary student and I thought, man, I should know the answer to this. I'm like, I'm not sure. And he said to me, I don't know either. <laughs> Which I'm like, well, thanks, that's helpful, right? But then he said this, but I wouldn't be surprised, Dan, if he looks at you, I'll never forget this, and he asks you, did you have any idea how much I love you? Like, honestly, I think that's the heart of this. You need to know that the Bible is clear. God is clear that his love is deep enough to reach the bottom of our sin. His love is high enough to satisfy his holiness. It's long enough to secure me forever, and it's wide enough to include everyone. That's the love of God. Which makes me think of something that 1 John says. We love because we've been infected by love, because he first loved us. And here's what that means. Our labor is motivated by love, that what we do is motivated by being loved, and it's motivated then by spilling out the love that we've experienced. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. It means this, all of life, listen, write this down somewhere. All of our life, everything we labor at, your job, your marriage, being a parent, things you're doing here at the church, in the community, all of life is an act of worship to the God who loves us. Change the way you labor. I was sitting with a, a couple recently. Uh, they weren't necessarily getting along. <laughs> and, uh, you know, couples don't often come and see me when they're getting along, you know, but they weren't getting along, and it was very frustrating. And the labor of marriage, <laughs> by the way, marriage is work. If you're thinking about getting married, just know that. I'm gonna, it's work, and it had become exhausting. And it's like to the point of like, I think we're going to give up because there's no motivation and I don't know. And, and, and I began to talk to them about inviting Jesus onto the couch of their relationship and how all of labor, not just at work, not just at church, but even the labor of marriage, the work of marriage, is an act of worship to God. And, and I reminded them of this movie because the, the man looked at me and said, what do you mean? And I reminded him of this movie, and I knew I could catch him because I, I knew he probably had watched the movie. And you probably have heard of the movie if you haven't watched it, Remember the Titans. And there's a scene in there where the, the team's not getting along. And it's getting exhausting, and it's like, let's give up on this because they're trying to mix 
black students with white students and the team is fighting and everybody, and like, it's, it's not working. And the coach wakes them up in the middle of the night and they run through the woods. You remember the scene? <laughs> and they're exhausted, but they get to the edge of a field and it was the battleground of Gettysburg. And it's there the coach gives the speech. And in essence, he says, on this field of Gettysburg, men your age shed their blood so that you might have the opportunity to do what we're doing here as a team. And his challenge was for them to leave the foot of that field and run back changed because of what happened on that field. Here's the point. Here's what it means to labor inspired by love, that all of our life is running daily to the foot of a hill where there was a cross where God demonstrated his immense, great love for us. That's how much we're loved. And to run back into our marriage, back into our parenting, back into our job, back into our community as a response to being loved by God that much. And that love becomes contagious. And that love is the fuel that when it gets really hard and tiring, that drives us. You tracking? That's, that's your labor prompted by love. He says one more thing. He says one more thing. He says this. He says, sometimes that labor gets so exhausting it calls for gut-level endurance. And he look, look what he says. He says, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their faith produced work, their labor was motivated by love, and their perseverance and hope was inspired, or their, their, was inspired by hope. Look what he says. Here's what he says in uh, verses 9 and 10. He says, They tell you how you turn from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Look at this. And to, say that word out loud, and to what? Wait. For his son, that's Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. They were working and laboring while they were watching and waiting. Here's the third marker of a model church that is seeing the movement of God at work in them, they have a confident hope that keeps on working while they're waiting. A confident hope. The message of the gospel was moving in them and from them, and the message of the gospel says Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set things right. In a few weeks, in a few weeks, we're going to look at a passage right here in 1 Thessalonians. That's why Paul's writing this. Jesus is going to come back. He's the king, and he's going to set everything right. And when your hope is anchored in that, right, you have a confident hope, that is what gives you endurance. Here, here's the problem. Many of us, many of us, even in the church, the church has wafted it between two extremes, Right? Some of us grew up in churches where, where they never talked about heaven. They never talked about Jesus coming. They only talked about working right now to do what we need to do, right? Some of you grew up in church like that. Some of you may have been exposed to that. Others of you, I just had two guys in a Bible study group, and they, they grew up in two different churches. Others of you, you grew up in a church and your Christian experience, and maybe right now, all they talk about is heaven. All they talk about is Jesus coming back. Maybe that's you. Like that's all you think about. You got charts on the wall of your living room of when it's going to happen and who the, you know, all that stuff, right? And I'm going to tell you, both are a problem. It, both are a problem. Some of us are waiting and we've stopped working. 
Some of us are working, but we don't think at all about Jesus coming back. And both are a problem. Now you're saying, Dan, how? Well, <clears throat> working without waiting and watching for Jesus is a problem because if I do that, I'm going to lose perspective. And if I lose perspective, I'm eventually going to get discouraged. That's why Paul said this. <clears throat> he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. Lean in, lean in. Followers of Christ should never be surprised when they're suffering opposition and persecution. There was here, and there is now, and will be. But in the midst of that, with joy given by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. He said, the work produced by faith and the labor inspired by love brought on this opposition. It wasn't always popular. And Paul says it was your hope watching, knowing how the story ends, that, that allowed for a joy, I would say that a joy that passes my circumstances, that surpasses my circumstances. That's what he's saying. And so you know how the story ends. So you're gonna keep running because you know Jesus is gonna come back and set things right. We know how the story ends, that's what he's saying. So I can keep working because I'm watching. Right? But the other extreme is a problem. That when I am watching and I stopped working, it's a problem. I used to work in a factory, and my dad, when he raised me, he's like, and work hard, and you work to the end. So I started working at this factory, and I remember immediately seeing a phenomenon that I worked second shift. We worked three to 11. And so you clocked in at three right? And you clocked out at 11. But I remember every night about 10.30, something happened. All the machines shut down. Everybody on the floor where I was working, gone. I was there alone. And I'm like, where's everybody at? Eventually, I, I found out where everybody went. They're all standing around the what? The time clock with their cards. They spent a whole half hour. They're like, we're just going to shut her down. And they were watching for the time clock to hit 11 instead of working. A whole half hour gone. And that half hour over a five-day work week, over a whole year's worth of five-day work weeks. You see, the problem is this. The problem is this. For people who are only preoccupied with Jesus coming back and they've stopped working, you're wasting time. You're wasting time. Look at what Paul says. He says this. He says, you became a model to all the believers and the Lord's message rang out. It echoed from you. Not only in Macedonia, but it became known everywhere. And he says, I want you to keep working while you're waiting. Keep working while you're waiting. That's the theme of 1 Thessalonians. Keep working while you're waiting. Keep working, this work produced by faith. Keep working, it's exhausting, but it's fueled by love. Keep working, I don't know if I'm gonna finish. We know how it ends. Keep working while you're waiting so that the message of Jesus would ring out everywhere. I wonder what message is ringing out 
from our church? I wonder what message is echoing from your life today. So Father, as we start this conversation, my prayer is that you would take this little letter written by Paul to real people in a real place at a real time and that you would change our lives. That you would change our lives, that a movement of God would break in on us. And there's some listening to me right now, God, for whom Jesus is not Savior and Lord. And I pray right there, around their computer, their, their phone, the TV, wherever they're watching this, that they would simply stop and say, God, I believe that Jesus loves me, that he died for me in my place. And today I want to declare him as my Savior, Lord and King. And I want the rest of my life to demonstrate that my faith is in Jesus. So God, we... Those of us who've trusted Christ, we serve you. We lay down our autonomy, our authority at your feet, and our life is at your disposal. And we labor because we've been infected by an immense love from you. And we endure because we are watching one eye for our King, our Savior, knowing that he's gonna make all things right. Thanks for the hope Thanks for the hope of 1 Thessalonians found in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.